0: So what I wanted to do was just uh, pick up on... I think it has bubbled up occasionally today, um, but if you look around the popular media, it is really quite apparent. This uh, discussion which is brewing up about the war poets and the place uh, in historical analysis of the war and the the conflict that we see. And um, this is from... Uh, there was a there was a two episode. I don't know if you saw it. One was called I think it was, was called the Necessary War by Max Hastings, and then it was followed up by Neil Ferguson's um, debate in the on the Friday. I think personally, Max Hastings won it hands down. But that's I never thought I'd agree with that. But anyway, uh, this was an extract, and he was interviewing the historian Michael Howard um, in in the programme. So possibly you can go and see it. And Howard says, the interesting point is not so much that after the war, opinion changed or opinion veered to the point when it said that was a bad war. It was badly conducted. It was a waste of time and a waste of blood and it should never have happened. Nobody thought that in 1918. I think nobody thought that for another 10 years until about 1928. Hastings interjects, the poets did. And Howard goes, "Ah, the poets did. But the interesting thing is whether people would have been interested in or affected by what the poets wrote. They became expressive of a public opinion in 1928. They weren't expressive in 1918. And this picks up on uh, a thing which you will find again and again that's being raised um, in historical books, which there's a a plethora this year, of course. Um, Really, where people are looking back and saying the poetry of the war, the ones which we we are probably picking out in in fair respect um, over the next two and a half days, is unrepresentative, it's distorted our view of war. Uh, to summarise that, it's non-representative, it's betraying an anti-war sentiment, it's written by uh, a cohort of male officers from a certain generally upper-class background, and does not capture the spirit of the times, the spirit, the, the views of the other soldiers, their fellow soldiers, or the civilians. Now, hopefully, you will already have picked up some points I've made in my short talks and in the longer presentations by the other lecturers today because this rests on, in my view, two, two ideas. First of all, that all war poetry is the same and that you can somehow bundle it up into a single concept of being anti-war um, and that we are in a position to know all the views of the combatants and non-combatants to therefore say that war-war poetry is non-representative, which I find completely ludicrous, but um, we'll come on to that. But I think what it it does expose an area which many of you uh, may know about, but you should certainly concentrate on. What happens to the war after the war finishes in terms of popular culture? And what I'm going to choose, just choose some highlights or some points uh, during the history post-1918 of um, how our view of the war has been shaped um, and I've only picked out some. You can add in whatever you want here. But uh, I think after the, the soldiers start to return in there and 1920, there was, a, there was a real feeling of celebration. Uh, there are recorded accounts uh, on uh, Armistice Day of big parties. They even had to book out the Albert Hall. People were just celebrating the fact that they had won this war. Um, and that is something which we find very difficult to sort of match with our current perceptions of the First World War, you know, the Armistice say November the 11th, um, is is very a very solemn occasion. It is, you know, there is a silent period, there are wreaths laid, etc. It is not a booze up to celebrate the defeat of Imperial Germany. So things start to happen, and I've picked out a few here. I mean, 1920, we have Sassoon's edition of Owen, so that's when we start to see his poetry appear. Uh, a very influential book called *Disenchantment* appeared in 1922, where it kind of was a bit of a, an expose of the people who were involved in running the war um, and the upper classes to say this was all a bit, uh, this was a bit sort of ill thought through, and it was all kind of scandalous. Uh, 1928, so it's not there. We start to see uh, Sassoon's memoirs uh, start to come out. But also 1929, we already had Goodbye to All That, Liam of Return of the Brute. There's beginning to form a sort of idea around the war. Now, there was some backlash. I mean, 1938, guns, The War of the Infantry Knew, is an attempt to say, actually, it wasn't all like that. There were other things, some of them quite positive, in the experiences that many of the soldiers went through. But I think what happens, really, is more interesting, is what happens after the Second World War. And there are some iconic... Uh, uh, not just literary, but film uh, uh, presentations, which really shapes or shaped people's view of the war. Now, I've pulled out a few that I think I find very influential, but Kubrick's Path of Glory in 1957, which was banned for many years in France, sets out a completely horrendous picture of the war with the execution of three innocent uh, French soldiers. We then have Day-Lewis's edition of Owen coming in 1963, and particularly... 1964, whilst we're all thinking about the 100th anniversary of the war, remember that there was a lot of activity around the 50th anniversary of the war. Um, You will probably have heard of the Great War series, uh, which came out on the BBC. They're going to re-show it, actually. Uh, That was absolutely seminal in sort of implanting in people's minds ideas about the war. But, of course, oh, what a lovely war, uh, which then became a film uh, in 1969... Uh, again set out this idea of the futile war the, sort of the death, the bad leadership and so on I'll come back to Brian Gardner's Up the Line to Death King and Country, a play and then a film um, which again points out the sort of injustices again around a, an executed soldier uh, and then 1975 Fussell's The Great War on Modern Memory which is about to be reprinted which I find incredibly interesting because ever since it was published people have been going over Fussell's book and, and sort of like criticising it and saying it got things wrong or it came at it with a very tunnel view. So to see it reemerge in 2014 is going to be a very interesting phenomenon. And then, of course, in the 80s, the Monocle Mutineer and, and Blackadder goes forth, which many people talked about. These things have formed an image of the war, and I think they go alongside with what I've shown about the anthologies and how certain poets have begun to emerge as the canon. I just wanted to mention Brian Gardner's Up the Line to Death. I actually have that, the original copy here. Um, And it's extraordinary that in the opening part of it, it says to read through this anthology is to live the years 1914, 1918, the Times uh, Educational Supplement. And although it is a very uh, worthwhile anthology... It has its flaws, and I think its flaws come from the fact that it was coming from an ideology, which is the ideology about the war, that namely it was uh, futile and a complete disaster. You can see this by the sections. Gardner took poems and put them under sections heading, Death's Kingdom, A Bitter Taste, so Jesus Make It Stop, At Last, At Last. And he would take poems, not necessarily in a chronological order by any stretch of the imagination, but anything he thought fit. Those, those headings. So, for example, um, I think, Oh Jesus, Make It Stop. We have, in, in this order, Louse Hunting by Rosenberg, Dead Man's Dump by Rosenberg, in parenthesis, Part 7 by David Jones, followed by Anthem for Doomed Youth. Poems which are separated by 20-odd years, but they're under that heading. And what this had, the effect was that certain poems that were written early on in the war were then put under these headings so that, that the reader was directed to read them in a certain way. And I think this has really sort of put, uh, or established and cemented certain views, and it was picked up by, by later anthologists. Alongside this, and we've, I think Elisa mentioned Dan Todman's book, The Great War, um, Myth and Memory, I think it's called, um, what was happening outside of the literary world? Well, Todman comes up five generations, the five generations after the war, and he said that these really set sort of the the way that people reacted to the war and why it changed. Now, you can put yourself in whichever generation you feel. Um, I don't know, but I presume you're not in the first one. Parents of soldiers who were killed during the war, they began to die out in the 40s, 50s, 60s. But uh, they were obviously setting that tone of mourning, uh, which became dominant certainly in the 20s and carried on because they wanted to memorialise the death of their children, quite understandably. The second generation of the surviving soldiers who uh, really began to, to, to die out uh, in, in large numbers in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, but of course, as we know, lived uh, to only a few years ago. They really didn't, on the whole, talk about the war until, it be, until a later stage. Uh, it is a common, and I think is, is a true fact, that trying to sort of talk to, about the war when they came back in the 20s and 30s was extremely difficult. And it was only really as they got later on in life that they could investigate this. Now, there are exceptions, of course, to this, uh, as we will find out, but it is that second generation. And uh, Todman says the 70s saw a fracture in terms of personal experience. Those who had lived through the war as adults died off in large numbers. Then there are the children of the soldiers and the service women. Um, and these, interestingly, when you tie it in, are the people who then led to these books and television programmes that came out in the 60s and 70s, Terrain, Charles Chilton, Martin Middlebrook, Lynn MacDonald, etc. Um, and the quote from Todman here, inculcated with the ambivalence of a period when the war's reputation hung between triumph and disaster. That, that discussion there, whether was it a triumph, was it a disaster, which they were trying to struggle with as the children of the people who faced it. The grandchildren are interesting because it's, it's reasonably well attested that the soldiers who had survived opened up to their grandchildren far more than they could to their children, for all reasons I'm sure we can imagine. Uh, and this actually saw an outpouring of their reactions there, uh, and, the, and the grandchildren picked them up, and then they would then, in turn, create their view of the war in the 80s and 90s, such as Alan Gleesdale. Um, But again, this was quite interesting because you had a a generational shift, but they were coming together, and they were coming together at the 60s when all kinds of social pressures were going on around people. People were reacting to sort of what they were seeing in the 60s, as we know, um, and the sort of escalation of violence in Vietnam. And also, Todman argues that the soldiers who survived were then repeating what they thought people wanted them to say. They weren't necessarily saying, this is what I think about the war. They were saying, this is what I think you want me to say about the war. That it was horrible and it was bad. Now, I'm not saying I support Todman's arguments. I'm just pointing these out because these are things which, when you study this period, it's, it's interesting to take on. And then there are the great-grandchildren, uh, which I think I fit into uh, just about, um, which grew up with the well-established myths, <coughs> which is a term that uh, many historians would use, uh, but I have no personal connection to the war. Uh, my grandparents didn't fight in the war. My, my great grandparents did, um, but we have sort of uh, not just blackout, but books like *Birdsong*, which really have sort of honed and sort of cemented our view of the war. But bringing this back to sort of where we where I started this reaction by historians against the poets and here's a couple of quotes from david reynolds excellent book the long shadow but i just want to pick out these because i don't necessarily agree with them british views of that war became stuck in the trenches assisted by a growing cult of a few anti-war poets such as owen we also need to think more critically about the new now iconic war poets these men were typical neither of the british tommy in general nor of the writers published poems in 1418. Their verse should not be used as historical description of the soldiers' experience as suggested by the still influential anthologies from the 60s. Most Tommies were not hypersensitively reflective about their own manhood, sexuality, or even suffering. So I throw those out as points for you to consider. I think he goes a bit over the top in that last sentence there, but let's move it. But as I said, this really rests on two assumptions that all war poetry is the same, which we know is certainly not the case. Uh, Elise has already spoken about these two gentlemen but to compare Robert Bridges with Charles Hamilton you'd be, well you could compare them but you'd be hard pushed to sort of say that they're coming from the same standpoint and I thought uh, Jane made the uh, it was the Jill Plain quote which again said that even in in, in women's poetry you will find every kind of view known and we are in a position to know all the views of competence and non-competence and so doing the war poets are representative. well as I've said Hopefully, several times today, the corpus is a vast church. You will find patriotic pro-war poetry, you will find anti-German poetry, you will find humour, you will find detached observation, you will find compassion, you will find changing attitudes within a poet, and so on. Therefore, to sort of somehow single this out, I think, is wrong. So, should we carry on studying war poetry? Well, of course, in an English faculty, yes, because it's poetry, so we're allowed to study whatever we want and the historians can go study history if they wish, but I think it is valid for two parts, two reasons. First of all, war poetry, I think we would all agree, has been influential on how we view the war, and this is from Jay Winter's comment in the New Cambridge Companion. It is to war poetry we must turn to understand why commemorating the Great War this year, a century after outbreak, still has a taste of ashes to it. But I would also point to a quote from Onions and Hibbard, which I think is... Very salutary. Military historians like generals often have to think of nothing smaller than a division. But poets, the best of them, write about individual feelings and experience. And in that sense, the war's verse forms a record both unique and true. Now in age old tradition, I shall leave that hanging and say discuss. <laughs> and I should suggest that if you do wish to discuss it, we would meet at 7 o'clock in the Eagle and Child pub and we can chew over the fact. Thank you very much to all the speakers for today. Thank you for all of you for attending such fantastic questions. I hope to see you tomorrow, uh, and where um, we will pick it up again at 9:30. Thank you.